When, when I was teaching, uh, I, I, had, uh, I taught for about uh, 18, 18, 19, 20 years, somewhere, somewhere uh, in that vicinity. It's a bit of a blur to me. But when I was teaching, I had the opportunity uh, lots of times to uh, officiate at athletics carnivals, which is kind of what you do. And I, I was the high jump guy, right? So you just officiated. It was like the longest event because uh, everyone got to have three, three goes and you get really excited because you just go, it's almost the end. And then someone to jump on the third go. It's like, okay, we're doing it all again. Anyway, there's one particular uh, athletics carnival. I uh, had the opportunity to, um, to officiate a javelin. Now, that's, that's pretty interesting, right? It's just an interesting sport. It's, it's, uh, there's three throws. It's kind of it's over at that point. It's like, this is going to be good, right? So uh, my colleague was on the line from where the uh, javelin... Um, people uh, would throw or the competitors would throw and uh, I was out looking after where the markers were all right which was kind of interesting right but you need to keep your eye on the on the job right because some bad stuff could happen you don't have to look too much in YouTube to uh, to find bad things that happen to Jaffel, uh, Jaffel. <laughs> javelin officials yeah, say that quickly a few times anyway so here I am I'm out there I'm adjusting a few we're in between throws so I'm adjusting a few Markers, not illegally, there was no money paid or anything, but just adjusting it to make sure things were right. And then I just hear someone yell out, look out, right? And they're all just kind of yelling at me, look out, right? Now, when you're out in the middle of a javelin area and someone says, look out, and you've got to find a stick flying through the air, <laughs> that's actually a lot harder than it sounds, right? I, I, uh, I used to be a weekend hacker, a, uh, a golfer. Who's, who's the weekend hacker here? Uh, see, they don't admit it. Weekend hackers don't admit it. But I used to go uh, and play golf quite a bit, and I think one of the dumbest things that happens on a golf course is like someone yelling out four. So it's like a 50-cent size roughly ball that's white flying through the air at about 180 k's an hour, and you're meant to pick it up when you haven't got a clue where it came from or where it's going or what tee it was. Well, it's kind of like that for me. I'm just going, likely if I just look up to try and find this thing, I'm going to get speared in the head. So uh, what I'll do is I'll just kind of bunker down and I'll, I'll put my hands and arms over my head and uh, I crouched down, I covered myself up and then it landed straight into my back. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, it's all right. <laughs> it landed. <laughs> it landed about two metres in front of me, Literally. I kind of looked up and it's just gone <laughs> straight in in front of me. And um, that was a big deal, all right? And uh, what happened was there was a competitor. It wasn't time to actually run and take your uh, throw. There was a competitor, 15, 16-year-old boy that was so amped up and fired up about it, he just ran and threw it, even though it wasn't his turn to actually do that. Um, and he came up and he was obviously very apologetic. And I think the grief for everyone in watching it and the trauma for everyone in watching it was worse than what it was for me, although it could have been far worse, obviously. Um, the school called it a near miss, which I reckon is a weird title, right? Because a near miss is kind of like it almost hit you, right? Which is not really... Anyway, it did almost hit me. It was a close call. Um, a near miss is it almost hit you, but it actually did, whereas uh, in my case, it actually missed me. It was a close call. And you know what's fascinating about close calls is uh, people respond lots of different ways to close calls. And the way that you respond to a close call tells you about how you actually interpret the event that happened to you, the interpretive kind of grid 
that you apply to it to, dis- to decode what actually happened. Paul Tripp actually says that no one lives their life on the bare facts that are in front of them, but only on their interpretation of the facts. We all bring an interpretation to stuff that's going on around us, and our interpretation dictates the way that we operate after it. And this is no less so the case than in when there's a close call, all right? Something bad almost happened to you, and you just kind of go, what am I going to do now? It, your answer to that question, what I'm going to do now, is actually dependent upon the interpreted grid through which you understand what just happened to you. In some ways, what we're talking about is logic. Logic's kind of the reasoning that you use. And uh, I, wonder, I wonder if you've ever looked at someone and just gone, what the heck are you doing? Like they're just doing something, and you just go, that doesn't make any sense at all. But according to the logic that's operating inside of them, it makes complete sense. Like people don't regularly do things that are insane unless they are actually insane. Everything kind of has its own internal logic that people are decoding the event through or decoding their context through. It's, it's an interpretive grid for them. Let me use the javelin example to illustrate. If your goal is to live a long, happy, pain-free, scar-free life, then being a javelin official may not work for you. (laughs) It just mightn't. Someone is throwing a sharp object in your direction and there is a chance that you could get stabbed. There's more of a chance that you could get stabbed being a javelin official than being a high jump official. Fair enough? There just is. So, if your goal in your life is to live a long, happy, pain-free, scar-free life, then you might actually say after that event, you might actually say, I'm going to be the official on the line instead of the one out in the javelin throwing area. Or I want to be on high jump. Or a 100-metre sprint is sounding really good right now. You know, your goals and your objectives in life are shaped by the way that you see life and the way that you interpret things that go on around you. If you want to stay alive and be comfortable, then you'll make choices that reflect that. Fair enough? Like, if that's your thing, uh, that will influence the way that you you do life. And if your goal is to stay comfortable and stay alive, you'll probably make pretty conservative life choices. And who knows that the screws can turn there and you can actually get down to some a really kind of limited, enslaved kind of life if your goal is to be comfortable and to stay alive, if that's kind of like your end goal. Because you probably won't do much that's risky. Now, in one sense, maybe you won't get hurt much, but you're actually going to miss out on a whole bunch of stuff as well. You know, what will make sense to you at that point in time will depend upon what your interpretive kind of grid is and the way that you actually make sense of the world. Here's where we're up to in Acts. Peter and John have healed a cripple. They've been arrested. They've been detained overnight. And then they've been told not to talk about Jesus anymore, and then they've been let go. They dodged a bullet, right? They could have gotten into a lot of trouble. And the question, the critical question, I think, is what do they do now? They had a close call. What do they do now? And the answer, one answer, one possible answer is, well, it depends. And that's a great answer, right? That's a good answer for a lot of questions, right? It depends. They could go conservative, right? 
So we dodge this one, everyone. We, ju- we all just seem to calm down, right? We could have been detained. We could have been in jail for a long period of time. That was really risky. This could really get us in trouble. We need to be careful about the stuff that we say. Guys, we just need to lay low a little bit. We, I mean, they could have just kind of done the, uh, the, uh, the politician thing where it's like, man, you just got yourself in a whole bunch of trouble. We're going to stick you on the back bench for a while until everyone forgets how much of a buffhead you were, and then we're going to bring you back. And then everyone will go, this guy's a legend because they've forgotten 18 months later about what he actually did in the first place. You know, they could have said, guys, everyone come together, you Christians, right? We actually need to be really careful now because we need to be careful that we don't offend anyone. And who knows that not offending anyone is really hard in our culture right now because there's actually not a whole lot of responsibility being placed on the people who are listeners to what people say. All the responsibility, about 98% of it, I reckon, is being placed on the people communicating. It's like the listeners can react however they want and it's going to be the speaker's fault, which I think is an imbalance. But what you've got here with the uh, Peter and John is they've got the option to shut down and not to make the problem worse. Don't, don't put a step out of line. Set up a committee, like an ethics committee, and let's just keep charge of what everyone's doing and micromanage people a bit to make sure it doesn't go south. Keep it on the down low. Well, let's go to the Bible and see what they actually did. Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. If you could look that up. Uh, in your Bibles or on your phones or wherever you've got a Bible, it would be great. Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. This is Peter and John in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they, all of the people there, lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See, I think in this passage of Scripture, you know what we see about the, uh, the Christian's interpretive grid is this. We see that they know who God is, they know who they are, and they go after it. So uh, let's get into it. Here's the first one. They know who God is. Have a look there in uh, verse 23 to 30. What's the first thing that the Christians do? They pray. They tell their friends and then they pray. Totally logical. Totally makes sense. <laughs> They love Jesus and they want to talk to him. Some stuff happened. There's some stuff going on. Let's talk to him about that. Something good has happened. A crippled man's been healed. Some pressure has come and they want to talk to Jesus about it. 
but not just talk to him about it, talk to him about it together as a group of people. They know who God is and they want to talk to him. He's a person and he's into everything that's going on for them. And most of what we actually are looking at in this passage today is a prayer. And I don't think, I actually don't think it was the whole prayer, I just think it's a summary of the prayer. It probably went a lot longer than this. But they know who God is. And you know what they know about God? Look at verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you know what I, you know what I think at that point? I just go, nice start. That's a good start, right? Like you, you get in your head that God is great, that's a good start. What are they doing? They're saying God made everything. Do you know something? That if God made everything and God by definition is non-physical, then there's absolutely no way that anything that he has created could get mastery over him. It just can't. It doesn't matter. Like Logically, it just can't happen. So the worst could happen on this planet. The worst could happen in your life and the truth will still be true that God is great. Amen? He is great. He is absolutely great. Everything is under his powerful hand. And in all situations, you need to know that this needs to be your anchor. This needs to be your bedrock. Now, you may not understand the situation that you're in. You may not understand what God is up to. It may feel like God has deserted you. It may feel like God is small. But when God's not sovereign over the goings-on in this world, when he can be dominated by circumstances, hope goes out the window, doesn't it? You get to a point where your view of God is that he's small and this other stuff's big and that he's pretty powerless and there's not a whole lot that he can do about it. I'll tell you what goes with him is hope. You know what I'm talking about? You've got to settle this. People, you need to settle this. You need to lock this in. God can get over anything. (laughs) Start there. Lock that in. Make that the start of every single day. There's nothing that's going to happen to me today that is going to get bigger than God and overshadow Him and make me be fearful in a way that something bad is going to happen and no one's in charge. And some of you probably even now are just going, but you don't understand, Peter. All hell has broken loose in my family. But God is great. No, no, but really, you should see the conflict that I have going on for me at the moment. But God is great. No, 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 seriously, Peter, like, just pull up. I just got diagnosed with cancer. God is great. We just lost all of our money, Peter, and we haven't got a clue how to make ends meet. God is great. My spouse won't come to church. And my spouse doesn't like me coming to church. God is great. Let's let's commit to starting here in everything. Not in denial. We are not project people. We are not people who deny what's right in front of us. We are not people... They say that bad things are not bad. But we are people who say that bad things never get bigger than God, ever. They don't even get close. 
Not, it's not even like a dead heat, like we've got to go to the photo. It's not like that, right? It's not even close. They never get bigger and badder than who God is. In the, um, you know, about the uh, 50th, 50th anniversary of the uh, landing on the moon, there's an article on the ABC website on Friday. Um, the title there is The Moon Landing Unfolded. Buzz Aldrin uh, took communion and here's why. And so it's this, it was actually written by uh, one of the guys from uh, the Centre for Public Christianity in Sydney. But fascinating article just about the head spin that actually happened for astronauts who got to walk on the moon. And, and in particular, just astronauts who got to go up in space and they could hold their, their thumb out and their thumbnail would actually cover over the whole world. Let me read you some uh, pieces from it. Standing on the moon and looking back to Earth, this is Jim Irwin, he was on the uh, Apollo 15 uh, mission and spent a few days on the moon in 1971. He was able to close one eye, hold up his thumb and cover the entire planet. Every mountain, every city, every person, every valley, every ocean, all under his thumb. Listen to this. Irwin said it made him feel terrifyingly small. He went on to claim that many of the astronauts involved in those early days of space walks and moon visits embraced spirituality or religion. Some had existential crises and struggled to understand the meaning of their lives. You know, they, they get up there and they realise how small they are and it just, like it just blows a brain fuse on them. And then uh, the author comments this, but we all have our moments of awe and wonder. The birth of a child, a sunrise that takes our breath away, a painting of unfathomable beauty, a moment in a musical concert that without warning brings us to tears. And when we do, it seems no amount of technological brilliance would ever, will ever fully explain or replace that feeling, nor the hunger for transcendence that haunts the human spirit, whether blasting into outer space or the outer space or tethered to more mundane earthly existence you have to get in touch with this you have to you have to look up at the night sky you know one of the one of the ways that god gets bigger in your life is when you get smaller and there is a mysterious blessing in being small y you're actually made to be overawed that's what you're made for. You're not just, I mean, awe is, if you go to the dictionary, it's reverence mixed with fear. Y you're actually made to be overawed by nature as a metaphor of God's glory and his greatness. You're meant to be overawed by him. You're meant, I think, to feel small. We, we need to be regularly reminded that we're small and that God is great. Amen? Like, let's, let's be reminded of that. I mean, if you want an identity statement, the identity statement of people at the project, this is one of them, is we are people who are small and we love and trust in a God who is great. That's who we are. One of the knock-on effects of getting smaller in contrast to who God is is uh, not only do we get kind of the correct size, but all of our problems get the correct size too. All right? When you, when you don't get kind of 
overawed by your problems anymore, but you're overawed by God and how great he is. And you realize you're really small, then all of a sudden all these problems that you've got are actually really small too. Now when I say small, do I say unimportant? No, I don't. There's a difference between something being small and something being unimportant. Being small doesn't have to mean unimportant. And God's very, very clear in the scriptures that the small things for you are very important to him. Aren't they? So you don't have to worry about that. But you do need to get them down to the right size because you get them too big and you get yourself too big in the middle of all of that and things needing to go the way that you want them to go and it gets messy. So this is the first thing I think that the uh, Christians know in Acts 4. They know that God is great. Here's the second thing that they know. They know that God and humanity don't actually see eye to eye. Go to verse 25 to 27. So God, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. God has opponents. God has opponents. And this is not something that the Christians have just worked out in Acts 4. They know it. And they know it because God said it a long time ago that he has opponents. He said it in Psalm 2. This is a quote from Psalm 2 that David wrote. Hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand, God said, people oppose me. That's the other thing that they know about God. We're going to come back to that a little bit more in a minute. Here's the second one. They know God. They know who they are. This is verse 25 to 30. You know, this is... I'd love to just spend some time talking about this, but it's uh, it's not directly in the text and we just don't have time today. But here's the bottom line. You actually work out who you are in reference to God, in relation to God. Always. Always. Identity issues always have to be dealt with in reference to God. Why? Because you're made in His image. From the very beginning, you are made to be in reference to him, to be who you are. That's just how it is. So God comes and he tells us things about ourselves and he tells us things about him. And we ought not try and work out who we are independently. You know, we see here in this passage that, uh, that Jesus is the anointed one, we are his servants, and that we will have opposition. Is the first thing. We learn here about uh, what the, uh, the Christians know about themselves. They know it's ultimately not about them. Go back to verse 25 to 26 of Acts 4 with me. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. David wrote this about Jesus. And we know it's, it's true, right? It actually happened. Uh, we read last week out of John 15, if the world hates you, it hated me first. And I, wanna, I just want to say something to you this morning. The, the pushback that you get for sharing Jesus and being connected to Jesus, if and when you get it, and I actually don't think we get a lot of it. But if you, like last week, if you take that extra half a step inside someone's space... And, and try to have Jesus kind of connect with them and you're, you're prayerful about that, you're just going to get pushback sometimes. And you just need to know when you get pushback, it's not personal. 
And I think that's what the, um, that's what the Christians know here in Acts chapter 4. It's just, it's not personal. Now, there's sometimes it can be personal, but it's not normally personal. It's what Jesus got and it's what was prophesied long ago. There's a theological and a historical reason for it. And these problems are actually part of God's plan. But who knows it's actually the personal side of people pushing back that makes it really hard. It just does. But you just need to know that most of the time it's just not personal. Uh, The person that it is personal with is Jesus, right? It's personal against him. You've just signed up to be on his team. And, and by signing up to be on his team, if you love him, you just, know that, you just need to know that some of this is going to be hap- happening. Don't be surprised. And try not to take it personally, because they hated Jesus first. Here's the second one. It's connected to that. They know who they are. They're people who are aligned to Jesus. You know, verse 29 says that they're servants of the anointed one for whom, to whom people are opposed. You know, I said last week that people are going to disagree with you. Now, (laughs) there is a point at which the gospel message is offensive. But I said this last week, if you weren't here, like you don't have to be offensive in your manner. And a lot of Christians can be offensive sometimes, I think, when uh, in their manner and the way that they share stuff. But you know, at the end of the day, I don't think, um, I don't think that we, we just don't have to be offensive. You know, and I think sometimes Christians have got a bit of a reputation for getting a persecution complex. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like they just have like dumb ways of going about talking about stuff and then people give them a serve and they go, oh, I'm getting persecuted. And it's like, well, sometimes like I look at some Christians and I go, well, you probably deserve a bit of persecution, right? <laughs> because of the way that you're approaching that. And, and, you know, I, th- I think we just need to hesitate a bit because I, I just don't think we're getting New Testament-type persecution in the West. Now, some of you would go, yeah, there's some stuff going on. And I, I totally think that there's some stuff going on. But this, like Acts 4 kind of stuff and what we see in the rest of Acts, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But here's the bottom line. As you push and you follow Jesus... And you do the things that he wants you to do. You know what's going to happen is some kind of persecution and trouble is going to go your way. And you ought to expect it. You ought to expect it. It's just going to happen. You know why? Because we're in a war zone where there's a lot of enemies. We just are. Have a look at, um, back at the, uh, the passage there. And you'll actually see, let me, I want to I read this to you. verse uh, 27 everyone look at verse 27 for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both herod pontius pilate along with the gentiles that's everyone who's not a jew right and the peoples of israel all the jews who's left no one everyone they've they've just nailed everyone so what are they actually saying they're saying Everyone who's not on Jesus' team, at some level, is an enemy. Now, some of you go, yeah, now we're going to get them. Well, Jesus said, love your enemies, right? Didn't he? But you have to stop and think about that for a moment. And I don't want to overplay this. And my goal is not to create a whole bunch of militant 
kind of gong-banging kind of project people out there in society, all right? But you have to stop and think about that for a minute. If you're a Christian, you're, al- you're aligned with the one person everyone's opposed to who's not on his team. Everyone. I mean, you could just even talk about human pride. Human pride is opposed to God. So if you sign up to be on Jesus' team, you've actually just signed up to be in opposition to a whole bunch of people. Besides being a manly supporter. <laughs> or I understand in the AFL, it's like being a Collingwood supporter. Is that, is that the AFL equivalent? Jaden says, yeah. Now, you don't have to worry about it, right? I mean, Romans 5 verse 10 says this, For if while we were still, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life, right? I'm, I'm not saying that what you've actually got to do now is go out and go to war, right? You're just in a war zone and you've just aligned yourself to someone who, who people are not up for. Now, let me give you some good news. This person that you've signed up with is mounting a heck of an offensive, right? And it's a beautiful offensive, right? Because it doesn't actually go the way that our world normally goes. So when our world thinks about a war zone, it's like we've just got to get powerful and we've got to get as many guns and weapons or whatever we need to do to fight this battle and to get, to get them, to get the bad guys. Well, he gets the bad guys by loving them, showing mercy to them, being gracious to them, and and changing their hearts. And this is one heck of a counteroffensive, isn't it? I mean, you look at you look at the cross. I mean, it should have been like just a just a massive fail. You know, you think about all the fail videos on YouTube, right? The cross should have been one of those. And I think that, you know, if the YouTube was around, the devil would have been editing his video probably on Saturday after Good Friday, right? So this is a massive fail, you've just blown it, um, we've won it, you're tanked. And then it, it becomes this hinge of history. And, there's, and there's, uh, there's millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people who love him now. And it wasn't this militant kind of shake my fist thing, it was a laying down of one's life, wasn't it? It was a showing grace and mercy. You know, at one level, I think you can see in Acts 4 that the Christians know it's kind of uh, God and his kids against the rest of the world. That's what you can see here in this verse. And a bunch of angels. <laughs> we were just talking about that the other day. Hebrews 1 verse 14, Aren't angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So here's the bottom line. You don't have to be militant. You're... Uh, you're on the winning side and you will win even when it feels like you're losing. Why? Because he's the most powerful one. He's the greatest out of all of them. No one beats him. And on top of that, this powerful one is making history go the way that history needs to go. Without removing responsibility from people, he's steering it to its correct end. So they know who they are. It's not ultimately about them. They're aligned to Jesus. And here's the last one. They're part of a larger plan. Have a look at verse 28 there. 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You know, the bottom line is the, uh, the Christians here know that they're in the middle of a story and there's a direction to the story. Uh, the story that's going on is not this random set of events that don't make any sense, like some kind of weird cosmic game of pick-up sticks. It's just not that. There's a direction to the events that's going on. There's a bigger story. And I think the Christians know really clearly that they are a blip in the middle of this story that's going on that has a direction to it. And it's not surprising to them. They're kind of going, hey, okay, well, they did it to Jesus. They're going to do it to us. And they know that they have a role to play in this unfolding story. And you know, the good thing about this story is we know, we've read the last chapter, haven't you? And that, and that Jesus wins. And it could never be otherwise that Jesus doesn't win. You know, and that means if you're connected to him, you win. <laughs> Even though it might feel like in the short term that you're losing. And if you're here at, at the project today and you don't know Jesus, you just need to get on his team. There's lots of reasons why you should get on his team. You know what one of them is? You win. And usually, the way you get on his team is saying, look, I'm a loser. So it's like Jesus' team is a bunch of losers get on board his team and he wins for them all. That's kind of how it works, basically. That's, that's kind of the nutshell. And it's awesome. The end of the story is sure. You need to lock it in. See, we're certainly not exhaustive, but can you see, these are some of the interpretive, this is kind of some of the pieces of the interpretive grid that I think the, uh, the Christians are actually bringing to what's actually happening to them. Now, I'll make it personal. So you know who you are, you know who God is, you know He's promised to be in you and to fill you up for tasks. That is your interpretive grid. That's, that's your spectacle through which you view the world. What do you do next? Or let me put it another way. If you had unlimited power at your disposal, what would you do? Would you say, I could really do something with this? And I don't mean necessarily even in a negative way. It's like, man, really? Like you're telling me that I've got unlimited power at my disposal? I remember uh, when my kids were young, uh, much younger than they are now, I, uh, I used to ask them, if God helps you, how strong can you be? And they quickly learned the answer was, you could be as strong as God. <laughs> what would you do if you had unlimited power at your disposal? Would you keep it in reserve? Would it be like that, you know, that red box, like smash in case of emergency? Would you just leave it there? Would you like, like, life's going pretty well for me right now. I'm on the, figuratively speaking, I'm on the banana lounge of life. And people are bringing me drinks, all right? And it's just sipping away and everything's just going really well for me. So I'm just going to leave it there. I'll break in case of emergency. Or would you go, oh, I tell you, here's something I could do with it. I could get more drinks with it. Or I could just, for my own comfort, I could use this power to kind of get my own comfort. One of the, uh, one of the things that pops up pretty regularly in uh, superhero movies um, is the idea of superheroes in retirement. Have you noticed that? 
I just, they, I kind of done a whole bunch of their stuff. It's like, no, nah, I'm done. I'm tapping out. I've done my work. I'm finished. I just want to have a nice, relaxing time now. None of this kind of getting involved with the problems of the world. The mess is out there. I've done that. I paid the cost for that. I just want to enjoy my comfort. And there's often in superhero movies this, uh, this scene where someone goes to the superhero and says, man, do you see what's going on in the world? You have all this power. You have all this ability. The world needs you. You need to come back. You need to come and you need to help us. And there's something in the scene when you're watching one of these superhero movies where you go, there is something unconscionable about that. It's like, that's wrong. It's wrong for you to have all this power and then do nothing with it. You could come and you could help, but you actually not doing that thing and getting involved with the messes in the world. It's like, that's what you're meant to feel as you're watching the movie. It's like, it's wrong. Like Superman, get your act together. Get your undies on the outside and get going. How could they have all this power and the world be in such a dire position and not use it? You know, you can actually, when you're watching these movies, you can actually get, and maybe it's just me, but you can actually get pretty judgmental. It's like, you're a bad person, Superman. Or whoever it is, whoever the superhero is. They're a bad person. You know, and it's got hallmarks of uh, James chapter 4, verse 17. And this is, this is a, uh, a, bit of a bit of a haunting verse sometimes um, because often we think about doing the, doing the wrong thing is kind of actually doing something rather than not doing something that you should do. This is James 4, verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, sin's not just something that you do, it's when you don't do something that you should have done as well. You know, uh, I remember finding out not that long ago that you can actually be charged for not avoiding an, a car accident when you could have avoided it. Like if something happens and it's like you're 200 metres up the road and someone pulls out in front of you and does the wrong thing, and you just go, okay, well I need a new car anyway, so let's just slam into them and wreck this thing so I can get the insurance and they'll pay the excess. Well, you know what? If you could have avoided an accident and you actually have the accident, you can be charged with that because there was something that you should have done that you didn't do. What did the Christians do? Well, you know what they did because we read the text before, right? What did they do? They went after it, didn't they? They totally just went after it. Verse 29 to 31. Listen to what they, uh, they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So what do you do? You've narrowly avoided trouble. They've told you, you can go, but don't say anything. A crippled man's been healed. It's clear that there's going to continue to be opposition. What do you do? Well, for them, it's obvious. You go after some more. <laughs> it's like, I remember saying to this, uh, when, when uh, Sue and Colin and I were in Texas in, um, when was that, 2016 or something? Yeah, we were over there and we are doing a redemption group immersion and there was this, I was co-leading with this American, <laughs> this, uh, this American in my group legend, Adam, Adam his name is, and um, 
I said to him, he was just about to go and do one of the teaching sessions. I said, mate, don't leave anything in the shed. He goes, what does that even mean? <laughs> he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. But that's the Australian thing, right? It's like, don't leave anything in the shed. Is, is this, and I'd ask you, is this your thing with God? You know, one of the ways that John Piper talks about it, as he says, is, um, is, is prayer... A comfort-centred intercom where you can get the butler to bring you more stuff or is it a wartime walkie-talkie? Do you go after more? I mean, this is what Moses does in the Old Testament. He kind of avoids disaster for the people of Israel. God was going to smoke them and uh, he avoids disaster. I mean, he he does it, I think, a few times and then at the end of it all, he just kind of goes, just give me more. I just want more. You know, one of the realities about leading an organisation and a church fits into this category as, as well is that when threats come, people can get more conservative and when people are successful, when we do something that works, people get conservative after that too because it's like we've just got to preserve the thing that we've just been able to achieve. Like let's, and, and it's actually, it's a dynamic that I see at a leadership level actually pretty regularly in the church. It's like we do something, it goes really well, and then we get more conservative. Or some trouble kind of happens and it's really painful and then we get more conservative. They nail the healing, they nail the witness, they get released and then they go after more. But, and here's the tricky bit, right? I asked you before what you'd do if you had unlimited power and there was, there was a trick in it, in the question, right? And here's the trick. God's not a machine. All right? And when, when I ask you the question, what would you do if you had unlimited power? If someone asked me that, the way that I'd be thinking is I'd be thinking about some kind of machine that I could manipulate and make it go where I wanted it to go. And I don't even say manipulate in a negative way. I, I could just control the thing and get the outcome that I want. Now, the difference here is that God's actually not a machine. God's a person. And that's a big difference. Do you know, do you know one of the differences there? Is he, he does what pleases him. That's what the Psalms tell us. And what pleases him is not always what pleases us. <laughs> Who knows that? Just know that. It's not always what pleases us. It's always best, but it's not always what pleases us. And that's the reality of the fact that we're not actually dealing with some kind of impersonal force that we just need to wield like some kind of l- spiritual lightsaber and we can get it to do what we want it to do, but we're actually talking to a person. And that's, I think, why they're talking to him and why he does different things different ways i mean read the gospels and tell me what the theologically correct way is to heal a blind person because jesus does it different ways what why does he do it different ways well one of the reasons i think is because he's a person he's not a machine and another reason why is because all the people who heals are people as well (laughs) and he just does different things at a different time because it fits a different purpose just like you and I do. Now, let me ask you another question. And there's not, there's not, there's not a trick in this one. People who have been in the project long enough know that there's a few catches along the way. Um, 
It, it's a question that you probably heard asked before, and, it, and it's this one. Why don't we see as many miracles in the West as it appears there are in other countries? Now, I'm not saying that we don't see them. I'm just saying that what it, just, it seems like we don't see as many. Have you ever heard that one asked? Do you know what I reckon uh, one of the answers to that is? Because I think there's a connection between risk and God's activity. That's why. And I think that's what we actually see in Acts chapter 4 here. What's, uh, what's risk? Risk is acting in a way that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury of some sort. And some of you straight away just go, well, I'm not going to take any risks. And it's like, well, you already have because you're sitting in a room and the roof could fall on you. Your, your whole life is actually filled with taking risks. You drove in a car probably to get here and if you didn't, you're probably at high risk because you're probably on a push bike, you know. There's no such thing as living a life where you don't risk things. Uh, John Piper speaks about this um, when he says that um, the real question is not whether you're going to take risks, but whether you're actually going to take risks for your own benefit or for God and other people's benefit. Because you already take lots of risks for your own benefit. Now, here's the catch. I reckon that when Christians start taking risks for God and other people's benefit, I think God gets busy. I think you see it in the Scriptures, but I think you just see it. I just think that's how it rolls. Why? Because I reckon if you were God and you knew what He knows giving someone everything that they want just because they want to be comfortable, it's not going to be on the top of your list, is it? Like Peter's saying, oh God, I really, can I just, can I have six more houses? God's going, really? Like, for what reason? Oh, it'll be a good investment. Then I'll be right when I get to retirement. Now God will and does bless people in that regard, but like, think about it. Like, if you're God, it's like, are you just going to start handing out all this stuff to that kind of person or you're going to hand out your stuff to the person who's going i'm taking risks that other people can come to know you i'm going to tell people about you i'm going to stick my neck out i'm going to follow you and i don't know how this is going to work out i reckon this is what it looks like the uh, christians are doing in acts 4 now let me give you a couple of really quick ones from the scriptures Right, just to inspire you. you know this one this is all my parents my parents used to say this one Shadrach, Meshach in the bed we go shake the bed make the bed in the bed we go does anyone else's parents say that and you yeah look you're all nodding all right uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego basically said they didn't bow down to this image that the king set up right Nebuchadnezzar and they got busted for it they said to the king, so the king's thing is like, I'm going to burn you to death. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw you in a furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Listen to the next bit. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. What are they saying? We're going to hold fire. And you know what? We reckon God's going to save us, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, this is where we're going to stand. You see what they're doing? They're, they're taking a massive risk. A massive risk for God's glory. 
And what happens? They get thrown in, the people that throw them in die because the furnace is so hot. And all of a sudden there's four people in there. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, who's the fourth person that's kicking around in there? Looks like a son of the gods. Well, this one is probably my favourite one. It's probably a bit hard for you to read. I'll just read it out for you. This is um, Jonathan and his armour bearer. Israel are just in a bit of strife. Actually, if you see the ending of the chapter before this, you know that the only two people who actually had weapons, like steel weapons, were uh, Jonathan and his father Saul, King Saul. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armour, come let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. This one's the best kind of disobedience to your dad, right? Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armour, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You hear that? I'm not even going to read the rest. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord... Dot, dot, dot. What are they doing? Taking a massive risk. A risk with their lives. What are they, what are they doing? They're having a crack. <laughs> now, for a, quite a few years, the joke around the project was that the unofficial mission statement of the project is have a crack. Right, and it still feels a little bit like that. Well, that's how I feel. Maybe that scares some of you, but my apologies to you for that. But um, have a crack. The one thing that's worse than failing is not trying, isn't it? I mean, no one kind of puts their hand up at the start of their life and just goes, you know. For the rest of my life, my goal is actually to be a really, I just want to be lame. <laughs> and not literally physically, like just lame as in pathetic. It's my goal in life, I want to be pathetic. So if we get back to uh, Acts chapter 4, do you, no- do you notice that the uh, Christians don't ask for the removal of opposition? Did you notice that in their prayer? Didn't ask for it. They didn't call down fire upon their enemies. They didn't even ask for deliverance from suffering. What they asked for is help us to be bold right in the middle of all of this and go and have a good crack at this. <laughs> and what's God up to? I think one of the things that we see in this uh, scripture here in Acts 4, specifically verse 30, they pray, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You know what God's up to? Is God is up to holistic redemption. Holistic restoration. God is not just in the business of forgiving sin. He's in the business of restoration across the board. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. He is. So what are they doing? It's like, let's get into it. Like if you go back, I don't, don't have time today, but it, this notion of holistic relent, redemption actually kind of shows up first in Peter's explanation before the Sanhedrin in verse 12, you know. There is a forgiveness of sins, but God is bringing about a full restoration. Now, the Grimbraker gets his man and gets his woman, all right? But what's, what's God doing after that? He's going to give everyone who loves him a new, a new body. It's, it's all going to get fixed up. 
But in the interim, he's going to fix up a bunch of stuff along the way. <laughs> and there's going to be signs about, uh, about the truth of what God is up to on the earth and we're going to see some of that stuff in the physical. So, uh, I'm going to finish. Let me, let me wind this up. For uh, over half of my life, I was a theological fatalist. Uh, what's a fatalist? A fatalist is someone who kind of says, it doesn't matter what I do, the outcome is never going to change. It's predetermined, we're just kind of stuck with it. So uh, for years and years and years, I actually didn't pray about stuff that I should have been praying about, right? Because it's like God's in charge and he always does what's good and so he just doesn't need me to chip in. Whatever will be, will be. God is sovereign and he does as he pleases. And I prayed less. But you know what? That's not how it's meant to be. (laughs) The sovereignty of God, God's being in charge, is not meant to deflate prayer but inflate it. You hear me? Because that's actually the hope and the ground on which you stand in every prayer. If God's not sovereign, well, there's no point talking to him. Because <laughs> he can't really do that much anyway. He's a bit lame. But if he is sovereign, mate, everything's on the table right now. Everything is on the table and we can pray about that and we can ask him to do stuff. You see, God's sovereignty, his being in charge, his greatness, is meant to energise bold petition. It's kind of, and you get this sense at the end of this passage in Acts 4 where the people are going, help us and come with us. We're going to go and stick our neck out. Can you help us to stick our neck out well and then just get real busy around us as we take these risks? What happens? They go after it and they get it. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The place shook, they were filled with the Spirit, and they continued speaking the word with boldness. How do you get God to do what you want Him to do? There's a, uh, a psalm in the, uh, in the book of Psalms that says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And there's a catch in that verse. You know what the catch is? Is that as you delight yourself in God, you delight in the things that God does and the things he wants to do. And, and it's not actually like, if I delight myself in God, he'll give me what I really want. <laughs> it's like, if I delight myself in God, he's going to change what I really want and we're just going to be really well synced and we're just going to get out and do a whole bunch of stuff. Amen? Amen.